I want to say dazed and confused, but I think Forrest Gump had more impact on me. Interesting. How so? I, I remember it more clearly now. I remember it more, the emotions more clearly, whereas Dazed and Confused, I was like, oh yeah, I remember that movie and it was really cool. And it was the cool movie at the time. But there isn't really an emotion attached to it the way that there was with Forrest Gump. Hey there, friends. Let me tell you about Alice. Alice Gu is an award-winning director and DP. She began her career as a director of photography, working with world-renowned directors like Werner Herzog, Stacey Peralta, Rory Kennedy. No big deal. Just Herzog, Peralta, and Kennedy, and that's just to name a few. I'm also very fortunate to call Alice a friend of mine, a dear friend and a longtime collaborator. I've had the opportunity to work with her on some amazing projects, and I've been lucky enough to see firsthand at what makes her an incredible filmmaker. I think it's three key parts. One, Alice's extensive background in cinematography. She can already see the shot in her head, and she can communicate that to everyone around her. I think this is such a powerful skill for a director. Two, she has exceptional taste. Just that. She has unbelievable taste. Three, she's kind. She works effectively and efficiently with her team to achieve great results. Throughout the podcast, we're going to talk about The Donut King, which is Alice's featured directorial debut and was slated to premiere at the 2020 South by Southwest Film Festival, which was canceled due to COVID. Despite the cancellation, the film still won the Special Jury Prize for Excellence in Documentary Storytelling. It also won the One in a Million Award at the 2020 Sun Valley Film Festival. The Donut King is about the rise and fall of a Cambodian refugee turned donut tycoon. Ted's story is one of fate, love, survival, hard knocks, and redemption. It's the rags to riches story of a refugee escaping Cambodia, arriving in America in 1975, and building an unlikely multi billion dollar empire, baking America's favorite pastry, the donut. Ted sponsored hundreds of visas for incoming refugees and helped them get on their feet, teaching them the ways of the donut business. The Donut King is executive produced by Academy Award winners Ridley Scott and Frida Lee Mock. It's a brilliant documentary and I highly recommend you all check it out. But before you do, let's learn a little bit more about Alice and this film. Something I wanted to talk about was like, I think we've, you and we've discussed this, but I've never really gotten dug deep on it but how did you get into filmmaking well like when was the idea Um, in your mind that you're like i want to pursue this how old were you and what were what happened probably college like 17 18 19 early on in college i decided i wanted to work in movies simply because i wanted to work in movies actually didn't really know what I wanted to do in movies. I thought it was production design, but I thought it would be a very fun and interesting place to work. And so I graduated school with the intention of being a production designer. Because you're very visual. I'm pretty visual, Um, still visual. So that seemed like the natural thing to do. That's crazy. Had no idea. Yeah. Uh, Do you... Um, is it something that you're still very passionate about when you're composing a scene or an interview? Or are you constantly thinking just so much about all the things, but putting special care into the design of the, the set? I am. I have to say it really irks me if there's not enough budget to do it properly. Yeah. 
it uh, yeah i think it's one of those things that's uh when you look at budgets on projects that are in development oftentimes that's the one thing they're not necessarily focused yeah, they, on they always want to they always want to chintz out on on our department and i think that's not fair and i think it's short-sighted because you can have god you can have all the a-list actors you want you can hire the best dp the best dp can only do his job as well as the place looks good you know yeah product and as you will and as you know i went from well wanting to be a production designer and going into being a dp and a production designer is my best friend as a dp talk us through from production design to where you are now what were the big career steps that took place and and then kind of i'll dig in deeper why those decisions were made but how did you get to where you are now like what came next after production design so i worked for production design and i mean that was trying to be like I, this was in the very very genesis of it all so i was trying to be an art pa or the unpaid art intern you know so i was still working very much as a pa and i'm not sure if i ever told you the story because it's really embarrassing and now it's a total big no-no now that I know better, but ignorance is bliss, right? So it was one of my first jobs as a PA. I'd done a couple of, you know, good production design, like art PA jobs. Um, but I was back on as a regular PA and the crew had broken for lunch in a commercial. We were shooting at Universal. It was my first time on the Universal lot, working there. It was all, everything was like bigger than life. And I did like the biggest no-no Again, this is embarrassing to share because it's such a faux pas. But I, as a PA, I was like, oh, look, look at that dolly sitting there with that big Panavision camera on there. I wonder, I wonder what it feels like to look through that eyepiece. <laughs> and, oh my God, I climbed onto the dolly. I mean, I, I knew it was kind of, you know, I, I, I didn't even know when was looking clearly. And I did it really fast because I kind of knew that it was wrong, but I was like, oh, if I just take a quick peek. And I took a quick peek through that eyepiece and what I studied, my degree is actually in photography. And I looked through that eyepiece and it sounds super cheesy, but I remember clear as day, it felt like a mother's hug. Hmm. It was this sense of everything making sense in the world and everything coming together. And it was, it was instantaneous it was this oh my god i'm like i've been going at this all wrong i thought i wanted to go into art direction and production design but no this nothing has ever felt more right than looking through this eyepiece and seeing this composition and it was right then and there that i decided to go into camera and, and really pivot right then and there and then i started asking to go into camera PA, unpaid camera intern, you know, however I could get a leg up. Um, and uh, it's kind of actually a really long story. So I think I'll spare you that, but um, I'll tell you another day of how I got into, into camera department. But you know, when the stars align and, and the synchronicities are real, that happened in a way that's truly magical. Um, and I made my way to being a camera assistant and learning from the greats. I had the privilege of assisting for some of the best in the business. Harris Savitas, rest in peace. Wow. Sal Tutino, Claudio Miranda, um, Darius Wolski. I mean, I really worked for the best of the best. And 
learned from every single one of them and had a lot of fun doing it. Um, and from assisting, jump your way into, oh gosh, you start DPing. And you were like, I mean, I just named dropped like some of like the best DPs in the business. And um, from there, I'm like, oh, okay, I'm gonna make the jump to being DP. And then you go from making pretty good money as an assistant to being like, oh, I'll be your unpaid DP. What do you have for me? And it's next thing I know, I'm shooting this horrible vampire short. And I don't know, you climb your way up from bad project and slowly they get better and better and better. But it's all part of the process because you're, I wasn't good enough to shoot anything besides a bad vampire movie at the time, even though I wanted to be, you know, I thought I was like, oh, I'm ready to shoot. I'm ready to shoot uh, Moulin Rouge. Not right. a deal, <laughs> you know? But no, I, I wasn't good enough to shoot anything but a bad vampire movie. Everything happens in its time. I agree. And I feel what's so interesting about production is that you all those every project you learn so much uh, you just learn so much about creative and you learn a lot about business and you learn a lot about like collaboration and partnerships and it's just you i always we always laugh that whenever you go through a big life event you get like you're the video game sims like you get these little like points above <laughs> your head like your life you're you know you start filling up on these different attributes and so whenever we have this crazy like project or something that you you know to your point the 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 bad vampire movie you still learn so much on those things that allow you to get to the next thing. And there is no fast track. And there are, I think there's some people that kind of just everything lines up perfectly and it looks like a fast track. And then you start digging in and there, there wasn't like they had been doing all sorts of little things in between that no one else knew about. It just seemed like that person hit the fast track and was able to be the unicorn in the industry, whatever, whatever industry it is, whether it's fashion tech or filmmaking, people think that there's just, uh, that they just magically got the Moulin Rouge project, got the big Disney project. And then you start looking and you realize like, oh, they spent 10, 15 years getting here. I just wasn't aware of the things that they were working on. So that's cool. I love that. And I can't imagine the things that you learned working with such great names. Well, check this out. Here's another big name drop, but it's really cool. I th so my gaffer for that bad vampire movie, because I didn't know what I was doing at all. I didn't have any crew. I had just a few friends. I had a friend who was a DP I mean, just out of SC film school. And he's like, I'll gaff it for you. I was like, you will? He's like, sure. He's like, I'll help you. That friend and that who gaffed my very first thing I ever shot, shot Star Wars. <laughs> um, he shot the Ryan Johnson, which one is the, um, which one's the Ryan Johnson one? The uh, Last Jedi. Is it no. The Last Jedi? It's the one before the last one. I don't recall. I'm bad episode, with the Star Wars universe. <laughs> episode eight. Okay. <laughs> episode eight. Um, shot Knives Out. Shot. Wow. Shot the Brothers Bloom. Shot. I mean, some. That is a friend who had that kind of talent, and he's like, "I'll help you." And I know there's no money. He actually handmade lights for me because we couldn't afford anything. It was a bad wow. vampire movie, so he built chicken coop. He built my lights for that wow. bad vampire movie. That's amazing. And that's one of the things that's so interesting about one of the things I get asked a lot uh, from just a variety of our interns, people are looking for jobs, 
pages when I worked for NBC Universal with Focus Features, like you would, you'd always get these questions like, how do I get to the next thing? And it's just like, just start making stuff like, and collaborate with as many people as you can, whether it's a short, whether you're, you know, like whatever you're doing, because you, there's these little synergies, things that happen on a set, whether it's a bad vampire movie or a commercial, you just meet people. I remember, I mean, I met you working on a project at Focus Features and I wasn't even like managing the production. I had stopped by and you guys were shooting at Coyote in West Hollywood. And I was like, oh, I just want to check in and see how everything's going. And I swung in, I was l- literally up in the, like, the lofts shooting emails off on my laptop. And I remember looking down and the way you're working with your your team, like your, your your assistants and the PAs and with the talent and with the uh with our producer, I was like, this person's extraordinary. I noticed that like I remember no that. No way. I remember that day too. I think about that day all the time. We were I was shooting um a, a like a scary guy. Yeah, yeah. That was gonna have like blood smearing down the thing. Yeah. And I think about it, if I can talk about this, like, I'm like, why did Dwayne talk to me that day? And I remember like, we exchanged like info and I got your card and I'm so glad you did. And there are no accidents and there are no coincidences in this world. And I'm so grateful at the risk of sounding totally woo, -woo, but I mean, it is, I'm there. I really believe that. And I'm super grateful that you're like one of my dear favorite friends. And it was that one day at Coyote shooting like this (laughs) dreadful looking horror guy like a promo and Mm -hmm. and anyway thank you that thank you for that yeah i mean it was just i could just see it i mean and you you know spotting talent to me is uh the details like i remember making you making lighting adjustments camera adjustments making recommendations for talent you know yeah you're right we're shooting a bunch of promotional stuff for this film and I could see that you're clearly an incredible creative person who was uh, um, doing more than shooting promotional stuff. Like you're looking at it as like a little short. You're looking at it just totally differently. But really what I admired was your uh, your ability and your collaboration with all your partners who were down on the floor. And I'm like, this is amazing. And it's rare. I mean, it's in this, for me working in, I've had a chance to work a lot of places all over the world, LA and New York, you know, it's a business and it's just like, get one, get a job done, move the next thing. And it's just a job. They're, they're all a bunch of jobs. And there's few people who are like, no, it's more than a job. It's, I have to really take care of this thing and make sure it's executed properly. And I want to treat my people well. And when I, like when I'm watching people do that, they stand out to me in this business. And you did like immediately, like, like this person is extraordinary, extraordinary collaborator with great taste and attention to detail. And like those things, I mean, you, uh, are priceless. And they're so hard to find accountability. So like they're, they all amount to accountability, whether it's treating people well or getting the job done uh, or uh, delivering above and beyond. And you absolutely did. I just remember actually like a week later being in the big marketing meetings and watching them present these pieces. And I was like, these are extraordinary. And they were so happy. I'm like, yeah, like you should have seen how they were shot. So yeah, I remember that day a lot. Well, I am nothing without the good people I surround myself with. Yeah. So. You have a great eye for talent. I mean, that's another thing is that, you know, I mean, we've worked on projects where you've had to bring on people that I didn't know. And I just trust that if you're like, oh, this person's great. And I'm really mindful of the people that I work with and usually like to vet them. And I, I know that if you're recommending something, I don't even have to have a conversation with the person. I'm like, cool, rad. They're going to be amazing. And every single time they have been, I've never, uh. like, it's awesome. So you do surround yourself with great, smart, creative and kind people. Um, 
so yeah we'll we'll get uh i'll save all my all the glory about alice until the intro that you don't get to hear until the episode's public but um let's talk about donut king so how you've been on a journey with this for publicly about a year now i remember like i think ever it started going out in the world was it uh it would have been south by southwest but yep covid changed that and became a digital type event and that was about a year ago right yep so over this last year how would you describe how donut king has been a part of your life it's been such a weird year because uh donut king was such a large part of my life and it was i mean there was no blueprint for it already for things going digital or having to I mean, I, what I had imagined for my life for that year, I was like, oh my God, this year's going to be so fun. I'm going to be here and there. There's going to be so many fun parties. I mean, all these new friends. It's going to be like, oh, I can't wait in the fall. I'm going to be in Hawaii. And then we're going to be in Napa with me and Martha's Vineyard, like all these different places. I ended up being my, in my living room basically the whole year. And I oh got, it was a whole ride of emotions, you know, with COVID hitting and, and the festivals canceling and Selfishly, you know, yeah, I thought that Donut King might become a ghost film. You know, everybody was preoccupied. No one was really, this was something that was so new and unprecedented in the world that people were, all people were talking about was COVID. And all I really wanted people to talk about was donuts. (laughs) And um, I was really afraid that it was going to be a ghost movie and we would never find a home for it. No one would ever see it. And what I'd worked, not I, you know, the whole team had worked so hard to create was just like, oh my God, are we just going to self-release this at some point? And, and am I, I'll just have to be happy with that and accept it. But the world did end up, you know, people are funny, right? People adapt and they found ways to pivot into digital formats. And I found myself doing a lot of virtual panels and Q and A's and participating in virtual film festivals and actually winning some awards and getting acquired and getting acquired internationally and getting acquired in other territories. And it was awesome. It was awesome. I can't say, I I don't have anything to compare it to, but I, I would imagine that it doesn't beat the real thing as far as being out there in real life in the world that I imagined that I would be in before the 2020 COVID year. But it was, it was a tremendous, it was a tremendous year. That's amazing. I'm so happy to hear that you feel that way about it. Um, how would you probably have said this, I'm guessing roughly 200 times, but how would, how do you describe the donut King to people who like when you're doing these interviews, like when you're doing podcasts and you're talking to press, how do you describe what the donut King is? Gosh, the donut King is, and you're right. I have said this 200 times, but I still have to struggle to find the words every single time. And I don't really know how that's the possible. I feel like it should be like out there, like, like rapid fire now, but the donut King is a movie about, um, I think, I really think it's everybody. It's all of our movie. Cause we all have, I mean, unless you're from like one very particular ethnic group, um, we all have roots somewhere else. We're all immigrants to this country, America, where we are. Um, whether that's first generation, second generation or fourth generation, you know, we all, somebody immigrated here from somewhere else to look for a better life. And that's really what the Donut King is about. It's about finding the American dream. It's about a Cambodian refugee who escapes genocide 
and war in his native Cambodia, arrives penniless to Camp Pendleton in 1975 to a country with no money and no friends, no knowledge of the culture, with a family, and has to figure it out. And with grit and the kindness of strangers, he finds his footing here in America. And within three years, becomes a millionaire in this country, shakes hands with four U.S. presidents um, and builds an unlikely empire of independent donut shops. And along the way, there's the second wave of Cambodian refugees. And since he was already established, he sponsored hundreds of refugees, helping them get their solid footing in America and their shot at the American dream. And um, multiplied. And so it's, a, it's an American dream story. It's an immigrant story. And I say American, but it is really, it's a very American story. Yeah, I agree. And uh, I, I thank you for sharing that. I thought that was, uh, I'm always amazed when filmmakers are able to talk about their films uh, after doing a bunch of press, you know, especially like a year of it. You know, it's not like you and I are doing this interview like a week after the, like the sale or South by Southwest. And you're still trying to find it. But I love that you're still like, I don't, I haven't. There isn't like a, there isn't a soundbite. Like you're just still discovering it. And I think that you, whenever I hear you talk about it, I think you will continuously, f I think that will keep evolving. I think you'll keep changing because as the world changes, the story does in a way, right? Like the, mm -hmm. it has the core of what the story is, but as every year that goes by, there's a new, you cover a lot of topics there's going to be a new element that's going to shine and pop out and resonate with fans. And, um, I, I, I'm, it was such a wonderful documentary and it's, uh, I'm so amazed that I'm blessed to know who you are, uh, so I can talk to you about it because it just it's just great. I know because of COVID you didn't get to watch people leave a theater, but, uh, I have to imagine at some point when the world slowly opens up, there's going to have to be a special live screening. And as those people are leaving, watching the Donut King and they're walking out of the theater, what do you, what do you hope they feel when they're walking away? I had two, um, quote unquote, theatrical experiences with the Donut King in this last year. Um, for one, uh, I did have a sneaky in-person theater experience. Oh, awesome. There was one theater during our theatrical run. There was one theater in California that was playing the Donut King and it was in Orange County. And I just said, I looked at the risk and the reward and I said, look, I just, I have to go. I, I can't have my first movie release and not see it theatrically. So uh, I went and I invited the Donut King's family because a lot of them are in Orange County and they all came. We sold out the theater at COVID capacity, you know, but we sold out the theater and this was the reaction. This was what I really wanted. What mattered most to me was the family reaction because they had placed their story that is so precious and so personal to them. And they entrusted me with it for me to present it with care and respectfully and truthfully. And their opinion is really the one that mattered the most to me above all critics and everything else. And we left the theater and Christie, so this is Ted's ex-wife, she was there and she came out and some of the grandkids and they came out crying and they thanked me and they said, thank you so much. Now we know so much more about our grandpa that we, we didn't really know. Christy, I talked to her, she said, no, that was so good. It was incredible to see it on the big screen. She's like, it was really hard, you know, to like 
relive some of that trauma and to see it on the big screen. And we mixed it with the intention of seeing it on the big screen. So the war and the bombs, like that was all, uh, gosh, I don't know, triggering for her, but that was, that was hugely rewarding to get the approval of the family. Uh, and there was another virtual screening that was with USC. And actually, um, it was part of the USC school of cinematic arts filming film series. And I think the the guy who curates it, he wasn't just being nice. He said the turnout has been overwhelming about triple what it usually is. It was like 338 people had wow. tuned in and the Q and a from that screening had this energy and buzz like no other. And so many people were just buzzing with questions and, you know, they were thinking about, and this is, you know, it's not, it wasn't just young people, it was current students and it's faculty and it's alumnus. Um, so it, it really is a whole range of people, but, um, some of the younger kids that they see America as, I don't know, America, the way that it's been. And they see this film, they're like, Hey, we really love this. And we really connected with it. But, um, you know, do you think that this is still possible? Like this is a different time. It, you know, it's been, and it's been pretty cool to, to diss America as of late. Right. And, you know, this wasn't, I, I didn't make the film to be like, yes, pro-America with a pro-America bent. I just really presented the information as it was, which was, you know, years ago, we had some different policy when it came to accepting refugees and immigrants and the success, you know, building on the success and, and building this kind of future legacy and generation of Asian Americans or what, what have you. And they said, well, can you still do this? Cause you know, is the American dream like, we don't, this, this can't happen now. This, this is dead. This would never happen today. And I said, no, I think you are wrong. Um, because I recently just spoke with kind of a new friend of mine from Egypt who had escaped Arab spring to come. I mean, he grew up in, you know, in a certain socioeconomic class in Egypt and would only end up in a certain socioeconomic class in Egypt. And he goes, look, now I live in America. I just married the girl of my dreams, this American girl. We live in San Diego. She's a surfer. He's like, I'm now a surfer. I'm an Egyptian surfer. And like, I have this job. And he's like, so from his perspective, he's like, what is everybody complaining about? This is the greatest country in the world. He's like, trust me, I came from Egypt. And when he said that story, I was like, oh my God, perspective is everything. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, Jose, my producer on it, he answered the question the same way. He says, you know what? I think really, if you're not from here, you have a different relationship and different perspective of what America has to offer. Yeah. And so no, that American dream is not dead. The animation, how did you, how did you approach and the decisions to what to animate and how to animate it? I was really curious about how you did that. Uh, I worked with my editor, Carol Martori on how there were so many, um, kind of blank spaces where we, we didn't have visuals to cover a story and we're like, okay, well, could we use archival here? We use animation here and I'm very analog. So I had the whole script printed out and we were like writing it and looking at everything and looking to see if there were consistencies. We're like, Oh God, we can't just have it be a mess. Like we have to have some sort of cohesive story here. You know, whether it's everything that's before 1970 is, is 
animated and everything after is we can like recreate it or whatnot. And we started on that path. However, it, we did end up breaking the rules and it didn't bother me. And I hope it didn't bother anyone else. Um, they're like, oh God, is it going to seem like a mess? But no one, fingers crossed, no one has said anything. Yeah, I didn't know. So, it. Um, we we did. I mean, there was some trial and error. We did we did do some like recreations of of scenes, and we stuck them in. We're like, this looks like film school 101. Like we cannot <laughs> we cannot do this. Let's go back to animation. Um, and we just found that the animation was the most powerful way to tell the stories. Andrew Hem, the artist, his key artwork was so deep and rich. There was just nothing. I mean, there's no comparison. Yeah, it was, it's so good. Um, and I think that uh, even just that at one first to answer your question, I didn't notice it. And I'm a stickler when it comes to editorial stuff. So I did not notice the rules breaking. Never felt that <laughs> way. I didn't feel like you were cheating at any point with your animation. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, it, was, it felt so good. Um, and I loved it. And the music, going back to soundtracks in the beginning of our conversation, was extraordinary. The way that you you blended the animation with the live action and then you picked the perfect uh, soundtrack, if you will, and like tracks to help uh, punch up and the, the the emotionality of it. Um, by the way, you should have a soundtrack, right? Is there a soundtrack that I can just like, is, is oh, there a Spotify playlist? There, <laughs> there is. Liza Richardson made one. Oh, awesome. So there is the Donut King soundtrack on Spotify. All right. I'll definitely share that in the podcast notes with everybody. Um, what was your favorite track? There's a lot of really good tracks in this. Uh, what was your favorite track in this film? I know that's a lot to ask. Oh, geez. <laughs> it's, uh, it's one of two. I'm sure you know the answer to one. It would be cream. Mm -hmm. It's Wu Tang. That one yeah. means a lot. And also it was so hard to get that track that it, that would, I feel like that, that is like an Oscar. I feel like it, that should be like on a pedestal for me. <laughs> uh, and the other one is um, our title sequence. It's geek down by Jay Dilla. However, you know, that was supposed to be, it was supposed to be working on it. So what happened? 10 CC would not play ball. Mm. So it's a very contentious uh, sampling and contentious litigation between uh, Jay Dilla's estate and 10 CC. Mm. Not clear. Not clearable. Oh, it's a bummer. And the irony is the the 10 CC track that is sampled for working on it is called Worst Band in the World. Oh, really? And I'm like, come on, 10CC. I'm like, you really are being the worst band in the world right now if you're not clearing this track. So that is the it story works. behind. Yeah. I, I didn't know. I mean, I, I felt it was really, I mean, anything Jay Dilla. But with going back to Cream, when you, were you, were you like in camera when you were like, I need to put, like, was it like while it was happening that you immediately heard the song Cream while you were filming? Like, or did you see it and then you're like, we got to use Cream? I wish I could say that it was all me. I, so Carol and we had um, our assistant editors, we had Ramel Mendoza and we had Rob Manalong. And we'd given like, you know, it's kind of rough directive. They're like, all right, well, what do you want from music? I said, okay, well, compositionally, I want this kind of flavor. Music and tracks that we're going to license. This is what we're looking for with, with a hip hop bent 
and this is this is the energy. This is the flavor. And I saw a rough cut of of that first scene, and it was Ramel who dropped in cream, and I was like, oh my god. Like there could be no other track. And I knew the phone calls that I had to make right after that. I had to call Jose. And this is a documentary. We don't have any money. And I had to call Jose. I'm like, Jose, don't kill me. He's like, what? I'm like, uh, there's a song. I'm like, there's no, this is non-negotiable. We have to get this song. Um, it's Wu-Tang. And Jose, bless him, to his, he never panics. And he says, uh, okay, all right, we'll work it out. But I know inside he's like, fuck, Alice. <laughs> and then the next thing I do is I call Liza Richardson and she, you know, a lot of temp music and editors, they're kind of the music supervisors. They can be the bane of the existence because they will do something like put cream in there. And they're like, mm-hmm. and the music supervisor's like, there's no fucking way we can clear this. They don't, we don't have the money. This is an unclearable track or for whatever reason. I was like, Liza, don't kill me. I got a clear cream. And she was like, oh my God. She's like, we don't even know if it's clearable. <laughs> um, but is it non-negotiable? We, if it can be cleared, we have to get it. And anyway, I, I utilized every, every, I had tr- every trick I had up my sleeve to get cream. That's amazing. And editors are very clever that way. And I think it's not only in features, but in advertising and in trailers too. I think that uh, one of the best advice I could give people who like want to work in like post houses and work on trailers is to like put in the dopest song possible because it will sell through the idea whether they can clear the song or not. The client, the producers, the financiers are going to be like, this is the greatest sequence I've ever seen. This is the greatest trailer I've ever seen. Like, yeah, now we got to find a new song. And that is the power of music. And that is why they're so expensive and deservedly yeah. so because they make you feel something. Oh, they're just I mean, so highly emotional. And for cream to set the tone of the film within the first 40 seconds, that's it. You know, you're in for a ride. Yeah, it's good. It's so good. Uh, I love that story so much. Um, I, one of my favorite questions to ask people is, and so this is not the question to you, but it's, you know, what would you, what, what's the best advice you'd give to your 16 year old self? I'm not going to ask you that question. I'm going to ask you, what advice would you give yourself when you first started this journey? If you can go back and give yourself one piece of advice, like right when you started working on the Donut King, what advice would you give yourself right then that you learned along this way? It sounds so cheesy, but it's never give up. I mean, and that's everything. I mean, that is never give up. I got cream, never get up. I mean, never, get up. never give up. I got, uh, the mansion scene mm-hmm. that's in the film. That is something that I wanted for about 18 months. Really? I mean, every single day, every single day, morning, noon and night, I was like, how am I going to shoot inside that mansion? Did I ever tell you the mansion story? No, I don't know the story. Please tell me. Okay. The mansion that he lived in and we were, is featured yeah. prominently in the film. In a gated community, I was like, how on earth? Never in my wildest dreams did I even think about getting the interior of the mansion. But I just yeah. wanted to get an exterior shot. I'm like, I have to show like how big and baller he lived at one point. And in a gated community, I called an influential person that I know in Orange County. I was like, hey, I'm like, can you help me? I'm like, you must know somebody. I'm like, how can I get into these gated communities? And he's like, God, Alice, you know, like the gated communities, they're gated for a reason to keep people like you out. And and you can't just like walk in, it's on the lake and you you can't just roll up with like a big old camera. I was like, oh man. So I'm like, I'm really not gonna get the mansion. Like the best I could find was an old picture from the MLS of the mansion. And then like that just 
kind of wasn't cutting it for me, but I sort of accepted, but, but not really. And so when Ted was here for three weeks and it was the day before he was going to leave and I thanked his eldest son, Chet, for driving him around, taking time off work, driving him from Orange County to like Pasadena and all over. And I said, oh, Chet, thank you so much. And he's like, yeah. And around Newport, you know, all over the place. And I said, thank you so much. We've got, we got a lot of good stuff. And I'm like, took that trip down memory lane, your, your first condo. And he's like, yeah. And it was more of like a little comment, like sort of under my breath. I was like, God, I wish, you know, that mansion in, in Mission Viejo. I can't believe like, that's like, that's the one that got away. And he said, very casually, not even, he said, well, if you have $3.2 million, you can buy it. It's, it's on the market. And I was like, stop, stop, stop. Did you just say that it's on the market? And he said, yeah. And I was like, what is the address? 275272 San Blas or whatever it was. I immediately typed in the address. I went to Redfin, immediately scheduled an open house. Amazing. And, and I was like, okay, how am I going to do this? And I had a scheme of all my different stories. I'm like, all right, do I pretend that Ted is my father? And I'm going to go in, I'm this like weird crazy rich Asian and my dad's going to buy this for me. And I film everything because I'm an influencer. <laughs> like I'm thinking of all these different I ways love it so much. of how I'm going to go in with, with a big camera. And the realtor, his name is Joe Piscopo of all names. He calls me <laughs> and he said, Hey, he's like, so you're interested in the open house. And I said, yes. You know, and I'm, you know, I was ready to spit a number of lies out there. And he said, okay, great. Well, if you can just show me your, your proof of funds and a prequal letter. And I was like, proof of funds on a $3.2 million purchase and a prequal. I'm like, I'm not pre-qualified to buy a $3.2 million house. Um, and I was like, okay, think fast, think fast, think fast. How am I going to lie my way out of this one? And I decided to come clean. I was like, Joe, I'm going to tell you, I have no interest in buying this house. I'm not going to buy it. This is what I'm up to. I'm a filmmaker. Da, 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 da. I tell him the story. There's a brief like moment of silence. And he's like, Alice, that is incredible. I'm going to help you. And, and I was like, what? He's like, I'm going to get, he's like this, I have to help you. You have to go inside that house. So he calls the owner and I mean, hours go by and Ted's leaving tomorrow. And I was like, Joe, what's going on? He's like, Oh God. He's like, I'm, I'm helping you, but the owner is not playing ball and the, and the realtor. He's like, Hey, can you, can you tell me what kind of last name this is? It's, it's these two letters, A, N. And I'm like, oh no, I'm like, it's a Chinese person. I say this being a Chinese person. I'm like, okay. I'm like, culturally the Chinese person isn't going to be the one who's like, oh yeah, sure. I'll let you in my yeah, home. Just come swing by and check it out. Yeah. For, for no money. And I'm like, okay, can we offer money? And he's like, no, he's like, they're being sticklers. They want the letter. They want a prequel letter and they want proof of funds. I know it's like, shit, I can't believe we were so, he's like, I'm so sorry. We really tried. And I was like, no way. Come nine o'clock that night, nine fifteen, nine thirty. way too late to call someone you don't know. I couldn't give up. And I was like, what is the name of this guy? I'm like, this, this realtor must have his cell phone number listed somewhere. I'm going to call him right now. And I look him up and I find his name is Jackie on. He has a 626 number and I call him again, way too late to be calling someone. He picks up the phone and I said, Hey, and I decided to come at him in Chinese. Okay. And I said, Hey, we want to buy the, I don't have the money to buy this house. This is the deal. And he listens and listens and he's like, um, okay. The lockbox will be open for you tomorrow at 8am. 
<laughs> what? And it worked. Wow. And we were, we were there the next day filming in the mansion. Wow. That is unbelievable. I don't, I can't believe I don't know this story. <laughs> never, <laughs> never give up. That's incredible. And, and by the way, I'm going to end the series notes for this episode. I'm going to have to give a shout out to both these real, real, real estate agents because that's awesome. <laughs> and anyone in Orange County area looking to buy or sell needs to use them because that's, that's amazing. That's right. I'm glad that they heard this story and we're like, and both of them were like, oh, cool. Thank you for being, thanks for telling me. And I want to help you. Like, that's incredible. That's extraordinary. The Chinese one was it was a little. I, I had to cajole him a lot more, and he was reluctant because Chinese people are very superstitious. Yeah. And he says, "Oh, he's like, you mean somebody went bankrupt in that house?" He's like, "So I have, I'm very worried now. If somebody's going to see this movie and this house is for sale, a Chinese person isn't going to buy the house knowing that somebody else went bankrupt there first. And I said, "You don't have to worry. This house will be sold long before this movie. I have a year of editorial ahead of me. Don't even worry about it." And he said, "Okay." Okay. They said, okay. And I'm like, I'll pay you money to open up. He's like, you have to pay me money. He's like, just go. That's incredible. <laughs> yeah. Never give up. I think that's the one thing that a lot of people don't realize when they embark on a big venture, whether it's writing a book or script, uh, producing a film, producing a documentary is the amount of like you're, you have to be your biggest cheerleader. Like you have, you have to be the one that wakes up every day that says, I have to overcome these 156 problems today and get this project across the finish line. Like when you come up with the idea, it's super fun and exciting. When you get in, you start actually putting the things together is when that perseverance really, really has to come into play. And I think it's one of the most important attributes to success in any industry is perseverance, but especially in creative, because creative is such an emotional roller coaster. <laughs> you get, you come in and see the incredible, like, you know, cut with the, with cream over it. And you're like, that's amazing. And you go home and you've got to cha challenge, get through a handful of issues. And you just kind of want to quit at times. And you may just to yourself in your own moment of time, be like, I can't, like, I can't believe we're doing this. This is exhausting. It's so much easier to do something else. Why did I put myself through this? And you kind of ask, and then you're at, you give yourself that moment and you're like, you know what? No, now we go back to making phone calls and see if we can get a tour of this mansion. So incredible work. That's awesome. What a cool story. Thank you. Sorry. I hope it was, uh, it was a little long, but I hope it was. No, worth it. <laughs> no, that is totally. I mean, that's the thing. Like it's so it's oftentimes when I hear interviews and I hear whether it's a creative or a professional business person in economics or technology, whatever it is, it's always the success stories, right? It's always the, when the, it's always about how easy things were. It's not how, it's not this little detail. When someone goes and sees the Donut King now, or when they, if they did see it, they'll go look back at that scene and not, at no point in the documentary do you talk about how hard it was to get the scene. So you're going to be like, this sequence, this scene was that hard and how important it was after seeing the whole film. Like, that was critical. Watching Ted walk to that house was so deeply emotional. Uh, imagine, like, imagine the height of your, your success, you know, 20, 30 years ago, and you have to go back and walk through that, like, mansion. Literally, you're walking through a ghost town and you're just yep. like, this was a previous version of myself. And watching that, that, Watching him is almost like you, like, I, as, as I can imagine from a production standpoint, everyone just disappeared when he was walking through that house. It was just him. And you could tell, like, you, no one was there anymore. It was just Ted by himself with his thoughts in mm -hmm. this, in this structure. And I, I love that. And knowing this story now only makes that scene that much more valuable and special. So awesome. Yeah. I can't imagine not having that scene in the film. I don't know what we would have done. 
Yeah. It just ties so much, so many things together. So, um, do you, I was just so funny. I have a question right here. Do you speak any other languages? <laughs> so, uh, so you, is that, you speak Mandarin? I speak Mandarin, Spanish, English. Incredible. Did you grow up speaking Mandarin or did you learn it later or was it a part of your life from the very beginning? It was my first language. Did your parents speak to you only in Mandarin or did they do both? My mom only in Mandarin and my dad at some point gave up and, and spoke English. Why did you feel when you started this that this story needed to be told? Oh, you know what? It wasn't even, it, there wasn't so much conscious thought into it. It was right when I read the story and found out about the story, like all of the five senses just lit up and maybe it was being in the Tao or whatever it is, but it was just, it was this feeling of this is it. This is the story. And I was like possessed, like I'd never been before that I, with every fiber of my being, the, the conviction that this was a story that had to be told. Um, but if I reflect on it now and why all of the synapses were firing that they, in the way they were, I think it was because it was, I don't know, it was my story. It was me. It was my family story without being my family story. I instantly emotionally connected to the story of them coming here and building a life for themselves. And those are stories that I've never heard from my parents about their experiences and what it was like and how did you feel and were you scared and or the language, did anybody make fun of you? Um, you raised American kids. These were questions that I never asked, but every single story I could relate to. Mm. And I think that was, that was it. it. It was a way that I could tell my story without it being my story. How can we make the world a better place? How can we make the world a better place? Well, this will be a bit of a Pollyanna answer, but I am an optimist and a glass half full person. And it is a bit of this donut diplomacy. I feel like some of the best connections and understandings are made with food. So in the Donut King story, when Ted arrived in Orange County, a very white homogenous Orange County in the 70s, and people ching-chonged him and made fun of his language and couldn't really understand him. Um, that's the first reaction, you know, and these, are these people bad people? Maybe it's a little mean spirited, but they don't really, they didn't really know better. And as they got to know him and made friends and Ted said, look, you know, when we started making a little money, then I would donate $5 to like Billy's little league game. And then they're like, Oh, they're cool. And then you start asking questions. In fact, there's, there's a movie that I'm working on right now. And it's, it's a, it was a psych experiment from the nineties, the Aaron experiment. And it's 36 questions. And it said, it guarantees two people, any two people can fall in love if they go through this exercise of asking 36 questions. And you realize that we all have this exterior. If you're a rapper, if you're a skater, if you're like a surfer, slacker, burnout, if you're a nerd, you know, we all kind of like adopt these different narratives that we present out to the world. And you don't really present out to the world your deepest vulnerabilities or like what you really are. And I feel like more of that understanding, whether that can be breaking bread over food or whatnot, but um, I feel like that is what can make the world a better place. Taking the time to think about some empathy and the fact that we are actually, I think that we're more alike than we are different. 
Thank you for taking the time to listen to our conversation. It means a lot. And if you enjoyed it, please take a moment to subscribe, share it with somebody, leave a comment. All those things help these stories reach a wider audience. You can watch The Donut King on a variety of streaming platforms. I'll actually link the trailer and the official website in the show notes so you can find more information. You can find The Donut King on Instagram at The Donut King Film. You can check out Alice on Instagram at Goobird, G-U-B-I-R-D. And as always, you can find us on Instagram at The Smith Society Pod. Have a wonderful day and thank you so much.